here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. SAFM 105.5 FM in Tabazimbi. So thank you so much for staying with us. That is something that's been on my mind for a while. Before we went to the headlines, I was saying that I've been thinking a lot about our habits and how we've changed our behavior. I remember having a conversation with uh, a climate change a climate change activist who was really pushing us to think twice about how many times, for instance, you wash your jeans. So the argument would be, well, you know, jeans don't get so dirty so quickly, so should we not consider washing them maybe? once after three ways because, you know, would be more kinder to the environment. Should we not think about using different types of um, chemicals to wash our clothes and our hands and our bodies and stuff? More natural kind of things. Well, the world is now changing and we are washing our clothes more. We're using more, uh, far more um, lethal chemicals for the environment. But there are chemicals that I think we've been pushed to use because of where we are right now globally. Um, we are disposing more of stuff. So I'm wondering, okay, that optimism that started trickling in at the very beginning when all of us were on lockdown, and obviously it was a phased approach, but where you started seeing, you know, the sky apparently in China was blue again and people just marveled at that. And there are places where people were seeing dolphins and they were seeing more birds and all of that. And, and there was this, wow, so nature is, is rebirthing itself. Well, what is our behavior now dealing with COVID-19 and how we have to behave, what impact will that have on the environment? That's the question. Ntlantasibisi is a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Africa. Thank you so much for joining us, Ntlantla. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pumela, and uh, thank you very much for inviting us as Greenpeace Africa. I remember that, that it literally it wasn't a year ago when I spoke to, I don't know, one of your colleagues and we were talking about Greta and we were talking about how wonderful it is that the, the needle is shifting and the media is finally focusing on the environment and everybody's doing something about it. I think we've all stopped talking about the environment. What are your concerns? Well, um, I think uh, uh, our concerns are shared by each and everyone in terms of us uh, flattening uh, the COVID-19 curve. Yeah. And uh, I guess we all have a responsibility the, uh, to ensure that we don't lose any lives in this process and um, to make sure that we also all play um, you know, a responsible role um, in terms of um, um, you know, looking after the environment because um, at the end we need the environment more than the environment needs us. Mm. Um, that's a debate for another day, though. But, um, yeah, we're very much concerned about lives. We're very much concerned about uh, uh, continuing uh, the activism work that we are doing in ensuring that uh, even within the pandemic, uh, we don't lose sight of the gains that we've made previously up until now. But is it really a conversation for another day? Is it either or? <laughs> because that's what I grapple with. Is it really yeah. a conversation where you can park because you've got something else to deal with or we have to push ourselves to have a, a, a more holistic conversation around how all of these things, the network just works within itself as a network. The, the, the planet doesn't isolate itself in spaces and pockets. It functions in an ecosystem, correct? 
Yes, that's correct. Uh, and uh, yes, you you are uh, correct by saying that, well, we can't park this conversation. I was just referring to one part of it. Yeah. But uh, the point that I'm actually getting at, at is that, uh, you know, we all uh, need to play a responsible role mm-hmm. and we all need to ensure that, you know, um, we don't continue with the pollution uh, uh, spikes that we've seen in the, you know, in, uh, in the previous decades, uh, whether it's through uh, fossil fuels or even in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of products that we are producing, especially like single-use plastics and the manner in which we are disposing of them. We see them along the beaches, we see them, in, I mean, in the rivers, etc. But uh, it does appeal, and this is a moral question, perhaps, uh, Pamela, that you can look at. It does appeal to uh, the manner in which you are behaving. Mm. But also, I would say that, uh, remember, uh, if we're talking about the holistic, uh, I mean, approach, mm-hmm. we also need to understand that government is playing the relevant role of regulating and ensuring that we have the right systems in place. And like, let's say, for example, when it comes to disposal of items, as we are seeing with plastics, uh, but also industry has a much bigger role in accountability um, um, uh, 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 to do in terms of, you know, the type of products that we are uh, producing mm-hmm. and the type of consumerism that is being fed onto the consumer. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's very sad that you find that in most cases, it's as if it's the consumer who needs to take, uh, to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. But uh, the supply chain, you know, plastics come from fossil fuels. Some people don't know that that it's it's actually a byproduct of uh, you know fossil fuels oil in this case, and uh, 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 the supply chain also needs to take responsibility in terms of ensuring that it doesn't feed us product I mean products that are easily disposable and unfortunately which are not recycled in most cases because the percentage in terms of uh, the recycling that we are doing uh, as a nation and as a globe it's uh, very minimal to compared to what we are producing and, and discarding into our landfill sites as well as the seas and the, I mean, uh, and the rivers. I'm going to invite Ndoni Ngunu, who is a founder and CEO of Black Women in Science and a PhD candidate at Wits University at the Global Change Institute, to join this conversation. And thank you so much for, for joining us, Ndoni. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Pamela. It's really great to be here. I'm glad you were listening. I think you were listening to a little uh, a bit of what we were discussing with Ndlanza. Yeah. And this is where I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I, I want to push back a little bit. I, you, I'm going to push you up a little bit, both <laughs> of you, because a part of me is asking myself, why is it so easy for us to revert to what we know? Why isn't it that in the time like this we are not pushing for more eco-friendly innovation in other words why are we still back to the same type of glove that we had 10 years ago 15 years ago when we know what that material does to the environment mm. uh, thanks for your question i think i like the point that Lanja made about it being an either or and and you saying should it be an either or mm-hmm. debate and to be honest with you pamela it really is an either or debate and it's because of your very question and that we did not have these systems in place and also to be fair on the government they we, no one could have prepared for this kind of pandemic so it is a debate between health keeping healthy and recycling it is a debate between um energy consumption in buildings reducing but then the energy consumption in domestic houses um increases and we just have to constantly be aware of the fact that we do not have these systems in place already and with the abrupt you know spread of the virus it's just caused us to really question it 
even the designs of our masks, as Ntlantla said, and the way in which we recycle, already programs were not put in place in rural communities that were enough to recycle and to, never mind that, put in the mindset of being green or being um, environmentally aware. So it is a debate and it is, it's, it's, a, it's a big trade-off that we have. Why, why is it not an opportunity rather than e- an either or? Why is it mm. not an opportunity for innovation? Because um, humanity, when pushed, has innovated. So, yeah. so, so in other words, right now, everybody is racing to get the vaccine, right? That for me is innovation. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not hearing anybody talk about the materials used for a new type of glove that is more eco-friendly. Mm, you know, Pamela, that's a good question. I just had an interview earlier and we were discussing um, activism and climate change and all those debates around the COVID-19. And the challenge that we have as a society, Pamela, is that when you do talk about the environment and when you do talk about innovation and change in the environment and green jobs, we have so many trade-offs in our continent and in our country as an as a African continent. So you go there and you talk about innovative masks. Which one is more expensive and which one is much more to manufacture? if you're looking into the business sector. The second thing is, what is my priority? So if I have an issue of needing to have food the next day or shelter or an education, unfortunately, it's very hard for environmentalists to say, focus on this right now. So it is a mindset and it's been a debate that was going on way before the COVID-19 and that how do we measure the trade-offs that we have between the environment as well as just livelihood challenges and risks that we have in our society. So it is definitely an opportunity for us to see it, but then we have to understand who are these innovators? How much does it cost to get this material that's renewable? Who's buying it and who has access to it? But it still does not block the idea of us you know being more creative in this pandemic my take is that part of the difficulty with uh, what exactly and Doni has just said is communication and and messaging and the efforts that it has taken for environmentalists for instance to get specific messages across it has actually taken decades to get the messages to land and in fact oftentimes you'd find indigenous uh, people saying well we knew this we just thought that to be modern we needed to change right so it's that kind of a conversation so the issue of whether it can be more expensive what we also know is that when people understand the benefits they act differently And right now, I wonder if we are just kind of, are we relegating the responsibility of discussing certain things only to government and we're not stepping up, Ntlantla? Yes, uh, thanks once again. Um, You know, uh, messaging is very key, Pumela, and uh, I I couldn't agree uh, more with you. Uh, And in your introduction, you actually referred to uh, discussions we've been having about Greta Mm. and how now the media is taking up, uh, you know, uh, this call and um, uh, addressing, I mean, issues that has to do with climate change, addressing issues that are directly involved in the environment, whether it has to do with the way in which we are treating the environment, I mean, etc. So we've had a problem. Uh, if you look at the history of activism and, and especially environmental activists, we've more concentrated more on conservation previously. And now a lot of other things have come to the fore where uh, the media is at least now getting on board and, and helping us 
with that messaging. And coming to, you know, to, indo- uh, to indigenous knowledge system, I'd like to combine it with what you were referring to about the innovations that we're ignoring. And, I'm, and I must say openly that there are a lot of innovations out there mm-hmm. uh, that are being ignored, that are not being adopted by, um, uh, by government and business. Mm. And I, and I need to say that it does require us to uh, to actually shift our gear a little bit and be a little bit uh, visionary in a way that when I say that uh, when we um, come up with policies or or or, or laws that are governing uh, the environment, uh, whether it's in South Africa or on the continent, um, what vision do we have? Are we tapping into these uh, scientific and indigenous knowledge systems? Uh, that are existing there and churning out a lot of innovation that we could make use of. And I think, uh, you know, um, uh, where, whether we're a country or we are the AU or the UN, I think there's still more that needs to be done in terms of pulling in this knowledge systems because it exists, it's there. And uh, also making it a point that, you know, it speaks to people who come from rural areas, it speaks to people who are in the urban areas as opposed to only uh, coming up with innovation that's more focused on the cities as well as, you know, coming up with sustainable options for, I mean, for, I mean, for your urban areas. Mm. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done across. And I agree with Noni that we can't actually pinpoint, uh, you know, the faults just in one place. But how, how holistic are we actually pulling these things together to ensure that, you know, um, we don't leave out the good ideas that exist. But also, I need to emphasize, because from a, from a, from an activism position, we believe that, you know, with more political will, we do see this mm. in other countries that have mm. taken up a stance in mm. terms of what they want to do to correct uh, the injustices that have been done um, uh, when it comes to environmental issues, whether it impacts on human rights as well. They have taken clear stances, policies are very clear, and they are not only just preaching about them, but they're yep. implementing them. So we need to, I mean, to also step up a little bit and, and accept that we need uh, some political will uh, to get these things into place. To the point I was driving in Doni earlier about either or and, and some of the issues you've raised around, well, is it cheaper? Do we need to save more lives? In other words, if we procure masks that are 15 rand as opposed to 50 rand locally, is that not going to be at least more sustainable for the immediacy of what is required now? And and my my little knowledge tells me that if we know also that that 15 rand is the cost of the mask, right? But oftentimes when people don't understand that we get to hear that the cost of the mask was 15 rand each and this is the cost of the mask from, I don't know, pick a country, China, for argument's sake, okay? Mm. But, but when we discuss it, we're not discussing holistically what the real cost is because the real cost doesn't become 15 rand. Mm. So it gets to be shipped in. Um, the real cost is fossil fuel. The real mm. cost is logistics. The real cost is managing everything else but the actual product, which eventually then becomes 50 rand on your store uh, shelf. So when, when I then make a decision about whether to buy the mask made in China or one that is made by my local supplier, and perhaps there's two, three rand difference, when I make the choice if I have been conscientized to understand sustainably what that means for the environment, because again, I'm not sure if it's either or, because 
getting it from a local person meant that you've done so much more as well from the environment's point of view's benefit that maybe I'll decide maybe a rand more is worth it because it sustains my community. Mm. Um, it's, it's definitely that logical, Pamela. It really is that logical, but it's not that logical. Mm-hmm. And it goes back into what Ganja was saying in that indigenous knowledge and the way that African climate change activism or environmental activism has been done mm-hmm. has not really been very good at communicating the full picture as you're saying Mm. and so there is a communication issue that we have have an education issue we also have i i want to drill this point for environmental activists and a climate and climate activists is that if we want to change the narrative of african of climate change into it being african we have got to understand what our people are going through in the rural areas Mm. and then building that conversation to environmental going forward Mm. but What's going on and why this education and this narrative is not understood, as you're saying, and this logic is that climate activism is seen as a Western thing as Mm. soon as you come into an African continent. So here you are coming in. Never mind that the way that climate activism is being trained or taught is done for a Westernized country. So obviously, if you come with that logic to someone in Europe, it will make sense for them. Why? Because they have food, they have water, they have shelter, they have education. And then you want to come and put that into this kind of economy, it's not going to work out. So there definitely needs to be an understanding and a redefining of what is climate change and activism in the African continent. And then putting in that logic to say, yes, we understand that this is one rand, it's just one rand more. For them, one rand more is one rand more. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a lot of money because of the fact that they do not have that extra one rand just to play around with. So it is very, it, there needs to be an understanding of where do we come from as a society? What is African climate change and activism? And as Dantla said, indigenous knowledge in that there is a problem in us giving credit to what we already know and what we are already running and saying we already have this running. How do we scale it up? That's never the conversation. It's always a conversation of how do we add in new projects that are international, that have bigger um, names or bigger associations. So it it is that logical. But again, I have to say that there needs to be a broader understanding in the way that we communicate, almost like understanding where people are coming from, from, from our hearts and connecting it to the environment. Ndantla, I want you to come in here because I've always argued and, and Ndoni is touching on something which for me is, is a language again and a messaging thing because I, I've, I found it very strange when you hear a narrative for instance the, the, you get campaigns every now and then the way you'd be told where uh, a campaign will be a message that's driven is you know people must learn how to manage water and not waste water every drop counts and close your tap and whatever and my argument around that is that Definitely the person who goes out into Dipslut and says that is disrespectful because people who live without water can teach us more about conserving water than you can go into that area and teach them about water. It's a complex conversation because as Ndoni was saying, our narrative and how we frame our messaging, we use terms and, and language and messaging that is actually undermining of what it is already that people are experiencing on the ground. So for me, we're having this conversation, having calling it climate change, sustainability. But then why don't we then shift the narrative and call it something else that people will understand? Because they do know. But we speak down to them all the time and get the assumption that they don't understand. 
Yeah, um, I can admit that, you know, um, uh, even the environmental organizations, uh, including other NGOs as well, they have been learning the hard lessons of um, if you really want um, uh, to get people to, to understand the issues. Um, and as you rightfully say, it's not like they don't know the issues, but if you really want them to get your messaging and, uh, I mean, and for you to actually pitch your narrative, you have to really, 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 really understand where they are. And I fully agree that, you know, uh, the the social and economic dynamics of the African continent, it's nothing compared to what you would say it's in the European continent, for example. And uh, as environmental organizations, we're also learning um, that we, we we can speak to, I mean, to, um, uh, uh, to indigenous uh, knowledge systems. We can speak to communities because remember, we come from those communities as well. And our narrative... Uh, um, uh, I mean, another reason why we also do partnerships uh, as environmental organizations because we have different strengths. There are there are organizations that are mainly, uh, I mean, for example, mainly focused on research output. Uh, there are organizations that are focused on working with communities, community leaders, and the community itself at the ground level. Now, as to how best you pull those partnerships, it makes our campaigns to actually be a little bit more effective as opposed to speaking only scientific language or, or pitching the narrative, you know, at a very foreign language, if I may put it that way, not yeah. literally, I mean, a foreign yes, language, yes, but yes. in the sense that it's so high, uh, I mean, highly pitched that, you know, you can't really get through to someone in Deep Slut, you can't really get through to someone in Secunda, so, and they everything just flies over their head. So um, I would, I would, I would, I would confidently say that that's what we are doing as an organization. We work with other organizations. Uh, we reach out even to, I mean, to organizations that are not really in the environmental space, but maybe, for example, in education, etc., where we can really, really, really get this narrative to, I mean, to where it needs to be and uh, and and to be understood. And even in our own local languages, because I do know that in other instances, some people shy away from using our local languages. We are part of the community. We come from these communities and we know the local land. So we break down all of this big jargon down to what um, uh, an ordinary person like myself would understand. Ndoni, to what extent do we have to admit that part of the problem with the sector is representation, number one? Mm-hmm. Um, because what I always hear are these experts coming in with solutions. Very few come to listen. And oftentimes, if you didn't bring in the solutions and ask them what's the problem, you'd very quickly get to what the solutions are for them. So it's actually not that difficult to, but what we do is that we spend money in in, in the research and we only trust that research. We bring that data, we spend a lot of money in in bringing messages that is lost in translation and then say it flies over people's heads. Nothing like that is true. What we don't do is we don't listen because in those communities are people with history who have got more knowledge about their situations because it's their lived experiences and oftentimes they actually want better for their communities than we realize we are not coming as the messiah we already have people in those communities who know what the solutions are but we don't ask and we don't listen Mm. um that's such a strong point pamela in the fact that 
what is it? And, and I've, I've been asking myself a, long, a lot this question, especially with this movement that's going on with Black Lives Matter, is that what is it that makes us not believe in ourselves so strongly that it has to come from another country or another mm. sort of race? So when we speak about climate change and when we speak about the environment, it's a faith thing, it's, it's, an, it's a belief thing more than it is about anything. And it's also a racial thing and it's a gender thing. And we have to be aware of these different dynamics in that when we look at all these different aspects to climate, that it's not just about your facts and your research. Gender is involved, race is involved, background is involved. And then you look at what is the role in which international media because this is seen as a as an international um, problem, and when you bring it here to Africa, it's like yeah, 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 but it's not really our problem. Um, what is their role in diversifying these faces? And then what is the role of our rural communities in making sure that we accept that diversity when we come in in those voices? So I was a part of that greater um, platform for. Mm-hmm the African, um, to talk about African climate change when Vanessa got removed. And then I started to realize that actually this problem wants to have this kind of representation and this kind of color. And because it has that kind of representation and that color, it makes it hard for us who are African-bred activists or climate experts to come in and say, guys, this is how your footprints will have on the environment. So having our own knowledge and having our own um, points or, or points put in across and taking a higher stance is our role. It's not just our role, it's leadership's role to say, look, we want to balance it out and say, yes, we have these experts and these scientists, but we also want local. Mm-hmm. And we also want um, your South African scientists or your research or your experts. But our own indigenous knowledge it's it's i think pamela to say it's just a climate issue mm. it's not just that issue we have that issue when it comes to businesses yeah. um where do you buy it in the business sector when it comes to our music why don't we listen to local music so we need to look at that in a full picture and say why do we not have our own value why don't we treasure it as africans so uh, uh, let me just then move uh, to what would be the most perfect example of where we have failed ourselves and, and how what we can do about it. So we have regulators that regulate medicine, for instance, and they regulate actually all types of medicines and they've got different categories. And I've been hearing this conversation about Mshonyani, I've been hearing this conversation about Lingana, for instance, and I'm thinking, why are we having the wrong type of a conversation? Because... I have never believed that Lingana is a cure. Like, actually, my my grandmother never believed it was a cure. But we put terms like cure as, as a barrier to a conversation. So before I even discuss Lingana, I'm busy fighting the term cure because I'm not a scientific person. And a scientific person is going to tell me how scientifically mm. we haven't done the work to call it a cure. That wasn't actually the point. The point is, this has got value. Can we not assess from a regulatory point of view what value, number one, it has, and if it can fall into a different category of medicine, supplementary medicine, for instance, so that we don't have a fight about its value. And other countries have done it. India has done it. China has done it over centuries where acupuncture, for instance, is a supplementary type of augmentative medicine. Nobody says it is the cure. But that argument is no longer a discussion point because there was a a will for a people to move in that direction. Why is it so hard for us 
to get this kind of support that we need to bolster that, as you said, confidence in who we are, Andoni? Yeah, so that's a that's a very interesting um, point in the sense that, it, you know, what you're saying feeds into, first of all, representation. It goes back into that. How many medical experts do we have that look African, sound African, that are feeding into international spaces? We don't have that. We don't have many of that. That's the first issue. The other issue is if we look into just the gaps that we have in knowledge, just the gaps in the haves that we have in diversifying knowledge and taking in that diversified knowledge into our systems is not a priority as a as a continent or as a country. We are just so okay with the fact that I would rather get my my medication from you know a pharmacy and I don't question that. But as soon as as you're saying, someone comes in with another cure or brings another value in it, we don't want to look into it. So this goes back into. Where are our experts? How are we building up our skill base? And the people that are are in these industries and in these skills, why are they not vouching for the voices of different kind of methods of healing or medicine? So as long as, Pamela, we do not have enough African doctors, enough African immunologists or epidemiologists, sorry, I'm not too sure of the name, but (laughs) all those people that are not African, based in Africa, doing that research or doing that understanding, we won't care, nor will that voice actually come out. So it goes back into if I am someone studying African medicine or medicine in general, and I'm an African and I'm a black African, my interest would be, or oh, I would look into that deeply and say, wow, this is an African cure. But now what's happening is the experts themselves that are in our continent are not African. And so then it's not their priority to look into that value. So if you look into the gender gap, the racial gap, the you know what, what country they're from in our continent, you'll see that there's a high lack of skill and expert knowledge that we have, and so we cannot do our own advocacy within those within those circles, and that's why we need more of those. So it's, it is a question of why do we not see that value? But then again, we need to go deeper and say. Who must see this value and advocate for this value? And the person that must see this value are the African researchers or the scientists or the doctors, but now where are they? So we need to, as a country, be aware of the fact that we need to build up our skill, build up our knowledge, build up our gaps, and, and then from there, take it and ask our own doctors, what, um, how do we put value into this kind of um, cure or, or medicine? Love to continue. Thank you so much both for this really thought-provoking conversation. Ndoni Ngoni Ngunu, who is a founder and CEO of Black Women in Science, and she's a PhD candidate at Wits University at the Global Change Institute. I'm also um, in conversation with Ntlantla Sibisi, who's a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Africa. Just gone two o'clock. Let's go to Utsila Saku for the latest in SABC News.